0: An old Italian lived by himself in New Jersey. He wanted to plant his annual tomato garden, but it was too hard. The ground was too hard. His only son, Vincent, who had helped him for years, was now in prison. And the old man wrote a letter to his son describing his predicament. Dear Vincent, I'm feeling pretty low because it looks like I'm not going to be able to plant my tomato garden this year. I'm just getting too old to be digging up that plot of ground. I know if you were here, my troubles would be over. You've dug that plot happily for so many years. I know you'd do it again. Love, Papa. A few days later, he received a letter back from his son. Dear Pop, don't dig up that plot of ground. That's where the bodies are buried. Love, Vinny. At 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents, local police arrived and dug up the entire area without finding any bodies. They apologized to the old man and left. That same day, the old man received a letter from his son. Dear Pop, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That's the best I could do under the circumstances. I love you, Vinnie. Sometimes help comes in the most unexpected way. This morning I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 16. We have been studying this portion that we call the Upper Room Discourse, now for a number of months. Chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 take place over less than 24 hours. These are the last words, the last experiences that Jesus has with His disciples And in these last words, Jesus says some very poignant and very important things to His disciples in anticipation of His departure. These are words that cause us to stand back, look at the big picture, drink it all in, and understand these are significant Words. We can't just write these off. These are words that we all desperately need. In John chapter 16, uh, 15, I'm sorry, the end of this chapter, we, we, we explored this last week. Jesus warns His, his men. He, he gets them ready for His departure, saying, the hatred that the world has shown toward Me will now be turned on you. In verse 26 of chapter 15, the first verse in our text, He describes the help that the Holy Spirit will be to His men. This is the help of the Helper. Read with me our text beginning at chapter 15, verse 26 through chapter 16, verse 11. When the the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because You have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes you may remember that I told you of them these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Three points this morning. The coming helper, the coming harassment, and the coming help. Point number one. Verse 26 of chapter 15. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify also. He he will testify about me. That that you will testify uh, uh, also because you have been with me from the beginning. As we look at these verses, I want you to put a wide-angle lens on your camera. I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see the whole panorama in one shot. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is going to come. He calls him the helper, the paraclete, the comforter. This one, Jesus says, I will send from the Father. He will testify about me, Jesus says. That is, the work of the Holy Spirit as He comes is to testify about who Jesus is. Jesus leaves. The Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is going to testify about Christ and the Holy Spirit is going to aid those who uh, are His people, the believers, he is going to aid them testifying about Christ. They have been with Jesus from the beginning. They know Jesus. As Jesus leaves, they will be called to testify about him. And the Holy Spirit is going to help them in that process. That's the big picture. Jesus departs, Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit is going to help God's people. Holy Spirit is going to himself testify about Jesus. Everybody's in agreement with this. No problems here. Now, when we change lenses and we put a telephoto lens on that camera and we zoom in on verse 26, we, found, we find that there is an enormous amount of disagreement, an enormous amount of problem such that there is division in the church. The Eastern Church and the Western Church, we call the Western Church the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Church and the Western Church have not spoken to each other for a millennia because of this controversy that we find in verse 26. Now, the point of contention in verse 26 is toward the end of the verse where Jesus says the Spirit of Truth proceeds from the Father. The word proceed means to come forth or to come from. If we were to use it in a metaphorical sense, we might speak of a river flowing from. So the Spirit comes forth from, flows from the Father. Is that what your text reads? That's a problem for some. Now, let me, let, me, let me expand this a little bit. If you look over at chapter 14, verse 26, you find that the Father is going to send the Spirit. Do you see that? And now in verse 26 of chapter 15, Jesus says, He will send the Spirit. The Father sends the Spirit. Jesus sends the Spirit. Is there a problem with that? No, there's not a problem at all. Um, this simply whets our appetite for the controversy that is here that's called the philoquay controversy. Now, the word philoquay is, is a Um, is a uh, a Latin word which simply means and the Son. Let me go back in church history and, and spell this controversy out for you. Every time there is false teaching, false doctrine that comes into the church, it is both a bane and a blessing. It is a bane. It is bad news because it misleads and confuses many. However, it is a blessing. It is good when false doctrine comes in because it forces God's people to dive deeply into the Scripture and ask the question, what has God said and what did he mean when he said this? In the fourth century, there was an an individual by the name of Arius who said, who taught that Jesus is a created being. In saying that, Arius was arguing that Jesus is not, could not be God. That's a problem. And the early church gathered together and they said, Arius is a heretic. Arius is wrong. And they they, they crafted what we call the Nicene Creed. A creed, like the Nicene Creed, is a, 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 an, an attempt to summarize to succinctly pack together biblical truth in a a, a tight, neatly organized um, uh, statement. Now, we recited the Nicene Creed as part of our worship um, just a handful of minutes ago. And we read the Latin version. We read the Western version. Bob, if you could show that on the screen. The the last third of this talks about the Holy Spirit, among other things. And the Nicene Creed says of the Holy Spirit that he proceeds, you see the third line down there, he proceeds from the Father and the Son. Originally, the Nicene Creed did not include the phrase, and the Son. This creed was written in Greek. It was part of, of what we call the tradition of the Eastern Church. Well, as you march through church history, the Western Church had its own heretics, its own false teachers that it was dealing with. And one of the false doctrines that the Western church had to to face was the idea that just as the Son proceeded from the Father, so the Spirit proceeds from the Son, flows from the Son. And the heresy was that God is a series of emanations. Each emanation being a little bit less than that which preceded. So that the Son was a little bit less than God, and the Spirit was a little bit less than the Son. So, in combating that heresy, the Western Church pointed to verses like chapter 14, verse 26 and chapter six, 15 verse 26 that say, respectively, the Father sent the Spirit and the Son sent the Spirit. And they argued the Father and the Son are ontologically equal. That is, they're, they are made of the same stuff, the same essence. The Father and the Son are one. And from them flows the Spirit. The Spirit came from them. The Father sent the Spirit. The Son sent the Spirit. Father and Son are identical. And so in the Nicene Creed, the, the, the Latin-speaking group, the Western Church, added the phrase, he proceeds From the Father and the Son. Now here's the here's the here's the here's the rubbing point. Here's here's the controversy. As you look at chapter 15, verse 26, from which they get that idea of the Spirit proceeding, flowing forth, if you will. From verse 26 of chapter 15, we find that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. That phrase that he proceeds from the Son is scripturally absent, but theologically accurate. So the Eastern Church says, wait a minute, it's not scripturally, um, it, 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 it is scripturally absent. And the Western church says but it is theologically accurate no wait wait it's it's scripturally absent no no but it's theologically accurate all right romans chapter 8 verse 9 speaks of the holy spirit as the spirit of god and in the same verse speaks of the holy spirit as the spirit of christ we are talking about an ontological unity within the Godhead. There is one God. He manifests Himself in three persons. And as such, they have a missional integrity to accomplish one task, but each person within the Godhead has a different role to play in that mission. More of that when we get to verse 5 of chapter 16. Let's take the, the, the telephoto lens off. Um, we're we're going to let the, the western and the eastern church Uh, leadership continue to fight this out. Uh, Pope John Paul, Vatican II, 1960s, did his best to try to reconcile the two together. Uh, That didn't work. We're going to let them uh, argue that. The the phrase, and the Son, does not appear in chapter 15, verse 26. But the idea, the theological idea of the essential unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is found in Scripture. We're going to leave it there. We're going to let them fight over over that particular controversy. But when we put our wide-angle lens on our camera and we see the big panoramic picture, we affirm that there is one God, three persons in that Godhead, and they each have a role to play in the mission of redemption. That's the big picture. Point number two. These things, verse 1, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. The word stumbling, on in the Greek refers to a a specific kind of animal trap. And Jesus is saying to his men, I don't want you to get caught unaware. I I, I don't want you to stumble into a trap that you didn't see. So I'm telling you what's going down. Verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Everyone who who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Up to this point, the persecution, the hatred, uh, the vile, the venom toward Jesus has been specifically focused on him. And it is going to take his life. However, With him gone, with him out of the picture, now the disciples are going to be in the crosshairs of Jesus' enemies. And they're going to be outcast from the synagogue. That's a big deal. That was a very big deal. During the period of the exile, and following that as the Jews came from Babylon back back into Palestine, uh, the Promised Land, um, when, when that took place, uh, the center of Jewish life, Jewish culture, uh, their religious life was centered on the synagogue. So if, for a person to be ousted, excommunicated from the synagogue, that was a huge deal, because that meant that you were now disinherited You were out on the street. You no longer had your culture. You you no longer had your extended family. You lost business opportunities. You were seriously affected in every way by excommunication. But it went further than that. Those who were attacking Jesus thought they won when they arrested Him and they subsequently strung Him up on a cross. We know the end of the story. We know that they didn't win, but that was their intent. They wanted to completely get rid of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't want His men to stumble, thinking, well, everything's going to be okay. No, it's not going to be okay. You are going to be stretched You are going to be stressed. You are going to be persecuted because of your faith in Jesus. Get ready for that. I don't want you to stumble thinking everything's going to be hunky-dory, copacetic, and fine. It's not going to be fine. They're going to think that those who kill Christians are offering a service to God. Hmm. In Acts chapter 9, we find a little biography of the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He was one of those people who thought he was doing service to God by rounding up Christians. They were false teachers, were they not? That's what they were in his mind. In Acts chapter 9, his biographer Luke writes, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. For what purpose? To kill them. To remove them. Not just, not just kicking them out of the synagogue. They, they wanted them removed completely. Well, you know the story. Um, Saul and his, his, his threats went, went, went nowhere. He got knocked off of his horse. Uh, the Lord had other things in mind for this man. And in a very short period of time, the hunter became the hunted. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we find some of the details of being hunted. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Okay, you do the math. Five times 39? Oh, that's a couple hundred lashes, beatings. Can you imagine the scars on that man's back? How many broken ribs did he experience? Were both of his arms broken? How about his legs? He continues. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Was that with or without a flotation device? How good a swimmer was he? I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brethren. And the list continues. He was a hunted man because of his faith in Jesus. And the Jews thought that they were doing God a service by hunting this man down. For another example, let me take you back to the Old Testament. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the Jews were camped close to the Jordan River. And they were promised to go into the land. The land given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now was the time. And while they were camped there, some Moabite and Midianite women came to seduce Israelite young men. And there was one incident that was recorded for us in Numbers chapter 25 one of Moses' great-nephews by the name of Phineas. That was um, Moses' brother Aaron, one of his grandsons. Phineas saw one of these Midianite women flirting with one of the Israelite men, and the two of them, this couple, goes into a tent to do what they would do. It infuriated Phineas. And he walked into this tent. I'm sure he did not knock. He had a spear in his hand and he turned these two people into a shish kebab. This is what the Lord said to Moses about his great nephew Phineas. Listen. Numbers 25, verse 12. Behold... I give Phineas my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And for that act, God applauded Phineas because he was zealous for God's holiness now I want you to listen to this midrash a midrash is a Jewish rabbinic interpretation of a particular text this is a Jewish midrash on Numbers 25 that I just read Quote, whoever sheds the blood of the godless is as one who offers a sacrifice. The Mishnah, uh, which is the written version of Jewish oral interpretation. The Mishnah says this similarly. The execution of heretics could be an expression of divine worship. So Jesus is preparing His men, telling them, I don't want you to stumble. I don't want you to fall into a trap as they have done to Me. So they are going to do to you. You're going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Some of you will be martyred for your faith. For your faithfulness to me, the guns of affliction will turn from me to you. Back in our text, chapter 16, verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. They did what they did out of ignorance and ignore-ance. ants. is, they did what they did because they didn't know. They didn't know God. They didn't know Jesus. And they didn't want to know. They ignored the truth. Verse 4. But these things I has spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. When their hour comes, when, when, when they, they come into their own and they, they think they got everything dialed in and they think they are God's blessing to the world and they persecute you for your faith in me, Jesus says. When they come into their own, you will remember this. And you'll know that I said this to you. End of verse 4. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. And the crosshairs of their guns were on me. But now, circumstances changed. Things are different. second page of your notes. Point number three. The coming help. Verse five begins with a phrase that that alerts us to the fact that there, there is a change of circumstances. But now, Jesus says, now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where are you going? Now, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, if you've been with us over the last few months, you will have in your mind a statement that Peter makes, then another statement that Thomas makes, and it and it will cause a, a, a light to flash on your radar screen, and you will respond, "Wait a minute." What's going on here? This doesn't make sense. Look at chapter 13. Jesus asks, I'm sorry, Peter asks Jesus this question. Chapter 13, verse 36. Lord, where are you going? Thomas follows. Chapter 14, verse 5. Lord, we do not not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So both men are saying, in a sense, where are you going? And here in chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus says, None of you asks me, where are you going? Wait a minute. Didn't they just ask that question? This all takes place within less than 24 hours. From the end of verse 13 to here we are in chapter 16, we're talking just a couple of hours. How can Jesus say, none of you asks me where are you going? Well, it's the same words but they mean completely different things. When Peter and Thomas ask Jesus, where are you going? It's it's a veiled question. Um, What they really mean is, why are you leaving us? Why are you abandoning us? D. A. Carson um, ha- has a, a, a homespun anecdote here that I think is helpful, and and he he likens uh, these two questions that are uh, at least the same words. Uh, he he likens it a- unto a story like this. Imagine a little boy getting ready to go on a fishing trip with his father on a particular day. And on that particular day, the, the dad comes and tells his son, I, I've been called into work. Uh, there's, there's an emergency meeting I have to attend. And the little boy responds, Oh, dad, where are you going? When he asks that question, The little boy is not asking for the GPS coordinates of where his dad's work is. Nor is he asking details of who's going to be there and what's the nature of this meeting. No, he's rather self-centered, self-absorbed in that question. And And the real question behind his question, where are you going, is... Why are you leaving me? How, how come you're abandoning me? It's the same kind of question the disciples asked Jesus. When Jesus, said the, asked, when, when Jesus made the statement in verse 5, None of you asks me where are you going. He's saying, gentlemen, you, you are looking at this whole situation from your own self-centered, self-absorbed point of view. And you are sorrowful that I am leaving you. But you're not asking me the question, Jesus, tell us, how is it that you can be the conquering king and the suffering servant at the same time? Jesus, how is it that you... Say you're going to die. Then you say you're going to resurrect from the dead. Well, what happens then? How does that happen? And, and then where are you going after that? They don't ask those kinds of deeper theological questions. No, they're interested in knowing, Why are you leaving us? Verse 6. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus understands what's going on in the hearts and lives, the souls of his men. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is to your advantage that I go away. It is beneficial for you. Because when he goes away, then Jesus sends the Spirit. Well, no, wait a minute. Jesus knows they're sorrowful. He knows they're struggling with this whole idea of Jesus being taken from them, killed, if you will. Why is it that Jesus could not have sent the Holy Spirit then to meet them in their point of sorrow? Why could, this, the, could not the Holy Spirit help them at that point? Here's the answer. It all has to do with the mission The scarlet thread that ties the entire Bible together is God's promise of redemption. And we look. And when we look at the totality of that promise, we realize some key things. We realize that God the Father is the one who initiated this mission. He called it into existence. It is God the Son who has the responsibility of accomplishing the mission and it is God the Holy Spirit who takes the accomplished work of Christ and applies it to particular individuals that they might be redeemed. Let's think for a minute about the work of the Son in this mission of redemption. Following the initiative of the Father, Jesus had to leave the presence, the throne room of the Father, and He had to go to earth. He had to take on a human body. He was incarnate. He was God in a bod. He had to live a perfect life. He had to offer himself as a sacrifice on behalf of those who were not perfect. More on that later. He had to die as a substitute. He had to be buried. He had to be raised from the dead. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Scripture tells us that the Father raised himself from the, raised him from the dead. Jesus said of himself, John chapter 2, that he raised himself from the dead. Who raised Jesus? God raised Jesus. He had to raise from the dead. He had to appear to other brethren. And and Acts chapter 1 tells us that he, he made appearances for 40 days. Then he had to ascend. He had to be coronated. And in that coronation process, the Father gave him the name which is above every name. Jesus is not that name given to him. The name given to Jesus is Lord, He is the conqueror. He is the King. And He had to sit down at the right hand of the Father. It was only then that Jesus' mission of redemption was accomplished. That's when, ten days later, the Father sent the Spirit. The Son sent the Spirit. God sent the The Spirit, God sent Himself, we could say it that way. The Spirit could come only after the mission by Jesus was accomplished, finished, done. He was seated at the right hand of the Father where He was prior to His incarnation. Verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away and finish the rest of my mission, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. And here's the help that we can, we can count on from the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, and he, speaking of the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Greek word translated convict is one of those Greek words that's kind of broad, it's big, and um, we can try as hard as we might to, to, to find uh, an appropriate English translation to, to, to render it, but nothing really fully captures, no, no one English translation fully captures what is entailed in this particular Greek word. It can mean um, convict. It can mean rebuke. It can mean reprove or admonish. It can mean convince. It is used in the court system in the cross-examination process of a witness or of a man on trial. And the idea here is the the cross-examiner is going to continue to pepper this individual with questions to the point that he finally admits his fault, his error... He is reproved. He is convicted. He is convinced of his sin. He recognizes his guilt leading him to that point where he admits his fault, his guilt, his sin, his, um, his, um, his wrongdoing and submits to the accuracy and the authority of the cross examiner. This idea of convict connotes a person who is absolutely relentless, relentless, coming with factual information that declares you're in the wrong and you must turn. In biblical language, you would say, you have to repent. Now, the Holy Spirit has this particular work of conviction with regard to these three things. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. And each of the next three subsequent verses deals with with one of these three subsets of what the the work of the Holy Spirit does in the life of, of uh, uh, believers and unbelievers, but particularly among unbelievers. He will, he will uh, come concerning sin. He will convict concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. Scripture says, um, Romans chapter 2 that the, that the law of God is written on our hearts. Now that's for every person. Uh, whether they are living in, in, in our neighborhood or they're living in Ungi Bungi land uh, wherever they might be the Holy Spirit has or God has already written His law on the hearts of these people so when they violate God's law they know it and they they feel a sense of conviction they know that they're wrong every culture doesn't matter if they've ha- have ever had a missionary there doesn't matter if they've ever had uh, the the Bible translated into their tongue every culture knows that killing somebody is wrong taking something that doesn't belong to you is wrong we we know that God has written that on our hearts. Now the Holy Spirit will come and He will convict us of sin. And there will be those occasions where the Holy Spirit will remind us yet again, particularly those who have seared their conscience by their continual sin in a particular area. The Holy Spirit will come and will convict us that is wrong. That is sin. That is inappropriate, whatever the case might be. But particularly, the Holy Spirit comes concerning sin because they do not believe in me. There's a lot of confusion, even in uh, even in churches, um, on what what is the unforgivable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? There are many people who who will say, well, uh, murder is unpardonable, or sexual sin of some flavor is is, uh, unforgivable. No. No, there is one sin that cannot be forgiven, and only one. Would you like me to detail that? It is to refuse, to reject, to push aside, to ignore the One who can forgive all sin. The unforgivable sin is is to reject Christ. So so the Holy Spirit comes, and when He is convicting regarding sin, He is in particular focusing on that sin of rejecting Jesus. And the Holy Spirit works in our heart to um, make us aware of the fact that if I reject Christ, if I fail to trust Him, if I fail to submit to Him, I have no hope there is no place else I can turn that will deal with my guilt and remove my sin. I can find forgiveness in no one other than Jesus. And if I turn away from that, if I turn away from Him, I'm lost. I I have nothing. There is no forgiveness for that because you have turned your back on the one is only able the, uh, the only one who is able to forgive sin Jesus said earlier in this, uh, in this gospel record he who believes in him in, in, in the Christ is not judged he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God Chapter 5, you are unwilling to come to me, Jesus says, so that you may have life. Chapter 8, unless you believe that I am him, Jesus says, you will die in your sins. That's the unforgivable sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world regarding sin, specifically they need to believe in Jesus. Second, the Holy Spirit comes concerning righteousness. He convicts concerning righteousness. Now un- unbelievers, uh, and, and we've all been unbelievers at one point, um, and, and, and some of you are more skilled than others, but we are all pretty adept at thinking that our so-called good deeds, in air quotes, are good enough so that God is forced to let us into His heaven. How, how could He not let us into His heaven because of how, how good, noble, righteous we are? Scripture says our so-called righteousness is nothing but a filthy rag. It's of no value. When the Holy Spirit comes, He convicts us of righteousness, specifically of our need for righteousness that will allow us to get access to the throne room of God. No one will get into heaven who is a sinner. You have to have perfect righteousness. Well, none of us have it. So how do any of us get in? Well, God has made a provision so that we can be clothed with the righteous robe of Christ. So that, yes, we are still sinners, but in the eyes of God, He sees us as He sees Christ. There's only one way to get this kind of righteousness and that's why trusting Christ. So so the first conviction regarding Jesus, our sin regarding Jesus, leads us to the second. Our need for this, uh, what what Martin Luther called, um, an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes outside of us. A righteousness that is Christ's given to those who believe. Verse 10, the Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Okay, when, the Holy, or, or when Jesus died, He was in the grave for three days. He rose. He, he appeared um, for 40 days. It was after that that He ascended. And it was 10 days later that the Holy Spirit was sent, day of Pentecost. It was um, at that time when they no longer saw Jesus, when he was now um, uh, ascended, coronated, sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's when his mission was accomplished. That's when the Holy Spirit could take the the finished work of Christ, and apply that to sinners who believe. So Jesus says, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and concerning righteousness, I go to the Father so that you're not going to see me. That's when the mission will be accomplished. That's when the Holy Spirit can apply my righteousness by imputation, and put it on those who believe. Giving them access, entrance into the throne room of heaven. And third, concerning judgment, these all pile on top of each other. The Holy Spirit conser- convicts concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Satan thought that he won the victory when Christ was on the cross. And he thought that Jesus was now done, out of the picture, not a problem anymore. He was the heir apparent. He's called the God of this world, but the God of this world was judged at the cross. And things went horribly bad from Satan's point of view. He was judged. He was condemned on the cross of Calvary. And all those who follow Satan will enjoy the same. They will be judged. Those who reject Christ, those who are not clothed with the righteousness of Christ, these, like Satan, will be judged eternally condemned. Conclusion. The Holy Spirit comes in our point of need. All of us have the need for forgiveness. We all deal with with uh, a guilt. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes. He, he, he He convicts us uh, of our need to put our trust, our faith in the Lord Jesus. He convicts us of our need for this this righteousness that certainly doesn't belong to us, but we have to have it in order to get into heaven. If we don't have that, judgment will come. He, He convicts the world of that. And all of us were in that boat prior to our conversion. Post-conversion, the Holy Spirit helps us because we are now the testifiers of the truth we find in Jesus. And He helps us in our weakness. Even when our tongue feels tied in our mouth, He helps us to declare the only hope, the only saving um, reality that is found in Jesus. I'll give the Apostle Peter the last word. In Acts chapter 4, we read these words. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Father, I thank You for the time that we have in the Scriptures this morning. We are the blessed recipients of this book that has been preserved to this time that we might know You, might know Your will, might know... Your, your, your mission of redemption, we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and, and not only be, be, be saved, spared, rescued from your coming wrath, but we might now, even now, experience the release from guilt. We might experience the forgiveness that is only found in Christ. We pray that you would apply these truths to the souls of the men and women in my hearing this morning on the internet even beyond that as, as we take these, um, these truths to our neighbors and our family members who don't know you we pray that you would give us boldness and courage to speak your gospel truth to the people around us that desperately need you. We pray for a harvest field in this decadent land. Pray this in the name of the Savior. Amen.